In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I was talking with Galen, Laurel, and Anne earlier before the service that uh, sermons are seldom remembered. <laughs> That's the truth. I know I don't remember sermons at all. I'll have to go back and listen to them again. I have to take notes. But I just uh, so in, in, with that in mind, I, there's one main idea, if you could just fix this in your mind and your hearts, and it's this. As our Father God reveals his love for us, we can rest in that love. Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, defines a nerd as someone who knows his own mind well enough not to trust it. Two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, we lose track of time, don't we? Uh, Patrick Egan encouraged us to approach the Bible with a hermeneutic of trust. I would add that we also need to approach our minds with a hermeneutic of suspicion. We must be careful with what our minds tell us. The New Testament scholar Richard Hayes writes, we should indeed be suspicious when we read scripture, suspicious of ourselves, whose minds need to be transformed. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus prays to his father, thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to infants, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is not being anti-intellectual. After all, he and God the Father and the Holy Spirit created our minds, gave us the capacity to reason and enjoy reasoning. But Jesus simply acknowledges the limitations of our minds. Walker Percy wrote, you can get all A's and flunk life. Jesus acknowledges that our minds, even brilliant minds that get all A's, or don't even have to go to school and figure it out anyway, even the most brilliant minds are not to be trusted to grasp the most important and fundamental reality of life, that God, the giver of life, invites us to know and embrace him as our father. A father's love is not something to be figured out, deduced, and analyzed. It can only be revealed and experienced. I am no child psychologist, but I am a child and I am a parent and I, I am safe. I think I am safe in saying that the thing that messes us up in life more than anything else is a lousy relationship with our parents or even a parent. Um, for those of us who are, who are sons, maybe especially with our fathers. How many uh, sons have spent a lifetime trying to make their father proud, make their fathers love them, prove themselves worthy of their father's love? I recounted this story many years ago in a catechesis, but when my father was dying in Indonesia, I found out and immediately flew. He was dying of a brain tumor. I immediately flew to Bali, met my siblings there. We gathered around him. And as I came into his room after coming from the airport, he was sitting on the edge of the bed. When I entered the room, he says, he's, he, he sits, he's sitting there, and he starts clapping, and he says, Robbie boy, unbridled delight. I figured, always figured he was happy with me, but I didn't know he delighted in me until he was dying. My dad did great things with his life, but perhaps the best thing he did for his children in a paradoxical kind of way was to die because as he was dying, we came to know how much he loved us. Love is stronger than death because it takes death sometimes to reveal the extent of love. 
So as we look at the first five uh, verses in Matthew chapter 11, those verses contain the word father five times and son three times, as if to indicate the priority of the relationship there. Um, most of this text is, uh, is about the relationship between a father and a son. And the relationship between father and son is so good that the son thanks the father, not for being a great dad, but for revealing his hidden treasures to other children. There's no like, dad, who do you love more, me or them? You love them because you love me. And we get a glimpse of the intensity of the, and the intimacy and the absolute security of Jesus and his Father's love because it's not the Father who dies to reveal the extent of his love for us, but the Son. Jesus is able to be grateful in his sacrificial love for us because he was completely secure in his Father's love. All, the, all that the Father had was his. Verse 27 says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Jesus is not only a son, he's a king who has everything. This is why, as, we, as uh, Anne read in Zechariah 9, this is why he does not need to fight as a warrior king with horses and swords to conquer and acquire, but comes as the humble king riding on a donkey. Jesus is not the taking king, but the giving king. And more than that, both father and son know each other intimately. No one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. It's a knowing that's not based on knowledge, but on relationship. It's a knowing based not on understanding, but on love. My little deacon's Bible um, has this note about this verse. This shows a profound relationship between the son and the father, far superior to adoptive sonship. And that love is such that the son is delighted to reveal his father to others. No one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And this is what Jesus reveals to us. The love of the father. The father's love for him now flowing through Jesus to us. And this is the hidden treasure. The mutual divine knowledge of the father and the son that would have remained hidden from us forever were it not for the gracious will of the father and of the son to reveal each other to the world. And this is the hidden treasure that we, using all of our intellect, all of our reason, all of our wisdom, all of our knowledge, and all of our effort simply cannot find. This is a hidden treasure that cannot be hunted, hunted down and seized. It's revealed and it's given. Glory be to God. And this is how the revelation of God, his love for us, enables us to rest in that love. Jesus' invitation to rest in his Father's love comes on the heel of his prayer, revealing his Father's love. And the verses we know so well and we love so well. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We cannot be at rest until we have received the revelation of our Father's love by his gracious will. Beware the person who needs love and will do anything to get it except receive it. That's when our minds start to go wrong. Because our mind, like an inner lawyer, will rationalize and justify anything 
our empty, broken, and deceitful hearts will do to get love. Our wills, unlike the Father's gracious will, our wills tend to be willful. We want what we want, and our minds find a way to justify our willfulness, which is seldom gracious, often selfish, and sometimes cruel. Be especially wary of the righteous mind, which wants so desperately to be right in its misguided pursuit of love. We are born to be righteous. As Paul puts it in Romans 7, I find it to be a law that I want to do right. But when we become obsessed with righteousness, when we try to gain righteousness by trying to be righteous, we simply become obnoxious. And this is precisely the human predicament that Paul points out, addresses in Romans 7. Paul uses, uh, in a commentary I read, a literary technique called speech in character. He presents a certain type of character, the Gentile striving to attain self-mastery by means of observance of the Mosaic law. The insurmountable problem with this, as Paul points out, is that we are captive to the law of sin. So many laws. In other words, our mind was not made to master our passions, but to serve our passions. In his book, The Righteous Mind, it's a great book by Jonathan Haidt, he uses a metaphor to describe how our mind, our reasoning, interacts with our moral intuition. The mind, he said, is the rider that rides on the elephant of intuition and serves the elephant of intuition and goes wherever the elephant wants to go. We will automatically fabricate justifications of our gut feelings, the elephant. In other words, we will lie swiftly and convincingly. I asked Tammy, um, Tammy, have I, when have I over, is there a time when I've made things up? I asked her, it's yesterday, or maybe it was Friday. She said, yeah, Rob, all the time. When my doctor asked me during my annual physical how much wine I drink daily, I say, oh, one small glass. She just goes, mm-hmm. Doctors know better. This is why each of us needs someone in our life, a person of authority, a person we trust who knows better, who knows us better and loves us so they can tell us the truth that our misguided minds chasing for love just cannot grasp. We lie up and down to cover our sin and we law up. That's a, that's a version of lawyer up to compensate for the lie so that living the lie is tantamount, living the law is tantamount to living the lie. Was that a little confusing there? Let me read it again. We lie up and, and down to cover our sin and we law up to compensate for the lie so that living the law is tantamount to living a lie. That is an exhausting cover-up. It's a double whammy and a terrible burden. And it causes us to cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the burden of this body of death? And then the glorious line, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, and in whom we will find rest for our overburdened souls. In the context of Jesus' ministry, those who are burdened are probably those who are struggling to bear up under the demands of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
who tie up, as it says in Matthew 23, 4, who tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders. And as Brad depicted in our missile on the front there, the, the, the picture of the guy with, uh, you know, carrying that, right, with the rod across his shoulder there. In the biblical world, a load-bearing yoke was a curved beam, precisely as you saw in the picture, laid across the back and neck and shoulders with chains or suspension ropes at each end. And peasants used them for hoisting and carrying heavy objects. And this was back-breaking work. So that might have been the picture that Jesus had in mind. And Jesus is saying the Pharisees and the law is what you're carrying. And what releases us from the double burden of our sin and our attempt to use the law to mask our sin and get the love we want? It's a revelation of our Father's love. Richard Hayes writes, precisely because there is filth in our own souls, we come to the texts of Scripture expecting to find the hidden things of our hearts laid bare and expecting to encounter there the God who loves us. What Jesus places upon us is not the heavy yoke of law, but the light yoke of love. This is the call to discipleship, to love God and neighbor as we are loved, and also to submit to the instruction of the Messiah and to live as he lived. It's not effortless, but neither is it an exhausting burden. When is a burden light? When we find our burdensome lives caught up, elevated, borne aloft by the revelation of our Father's love. My missionary parents carried the burden of having to bring Jesus to two million Hindus in Bali. At least that's how I perceived it. Two million of them. And uh, I thought, that's crazy. When my mother became overwhelmed by that burden, compounded by heat, exhaustion, spiritual warfare, oppression, and the indifference of most Balinese, my father would say very graciously, graciously to her, Lilia, you need a douse from the spout where the glory comes out. Maybe you'll remember that line from the sermon. You need a douse from the spout where the glory comes out. I am more my mother's son, I think, than my father's a burden bearer and taking on more instead of releasing. And you know why? Because these burdens validate me even as they smother me. I, we, all of us need to spend more time under the spout, receiving glory that will lift our burdens instead of generating and piling on the unbearable weight of our own glory. We need to spend more time under the spout and a lot less time trying to jam our fingers into all the leaks in the dike. Let God do that. I just read C.S. Lewis' sermon, The Weight of Glory. And I was thinking about God and his infinite glory. And the only way that God can bear the weight of his infinite glory is because of his, of his infinite love, which, of course, makes that glory eternally light and expansive so it fills the universe and it fills us and God does not demand glory of us he gives it to us as Lewis writes I suddenly remember that no one can enter heaven except as a child and nothing is so obvious in a child not in a conceited child but in a good child as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work 
or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And if C.S. Lewis says it, so it is. Not the weight of our glory, but the weight of God's glory, which is, his father, which is our Father's love for us, his beloved sons and daughters, all souls. This is the love that is not burdensome, but instead, this is the love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. May God's love lift us, even as we lift each other. Amen.